Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. This is the most, I think, the most crazy thing about this trial. Do you know how many strikes the defendant used, the defense counsel used in this case? Zero. He struck <laughs> zero people off the jury. Not one person. It was that good for him. He, he, he didn't have to. Yeah. It was just everybody looked like him and looked mm-hmm. like the defendant. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. This is the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, nobody knows this and nobody will know it when we're listening to it because it's going to be in about a month or two before this airs. But uh, we're right in the middle of the holidays. So how's your holiday? Um, Thank you for asking. I actually am so glad that we're recording the episode that we are today because I got hit by a car on Christmas Eve. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you know a good lawyer? <laughs> Um, <laughs> are you okay? Yeah. I should ask that first. Are you okay? I know some guys. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm fine. It was a, it was a fairly low speed, but so weird. And the most awkward part is it was like seven degrees here. So I was like super bumbled, bundled up like the kid in a Christmas story, you know, just like the scarf wrapped around. Um, and the person who hit me was my neighbor. And I think he still doesn't know that it's me and that I'm his neighbor. <laughs> um, but no, I'm fine. Uh, they, he didn't run over my dog. No harm, no foul. Well, that's um, good. But oh, anyway, wait a minute. Are you saying you were a pedestrian? Yes, like, I, oh, got, you... I physically got hit by a Oh, car. my God. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was only yeah. because you were wearing so much padding that you're okay. Probably. Right. Wow. Yeah, to be honest, like the, I was like walking around like the Michelin man. So it was fine. Oh, man. Well, we're glad you're OK. We're glad. Yeah. You're okay. Anyway, so how how was your Christmas Eve? <laughs> uh, great, great. You know, uh, we uh, um, uh, we just got out of trial right before Christmas. So uh, had to do a lot of last minute scrambling for Christmas gifts and things like that. But uh, but we had a great Christmas, had family in town and um, and just enjoyed it in uh in not near as cold as what you have it up in atlanta although it did get all the way down to 20 degrees for us which is uh for savannah is very cold yeah for sure um well uh all right let's not bore anybody else with our holiday stories let's uh introduce our two we could talk about the weather all day (laughs) yeah exactly and and i'm sure everybody tuned into this podcast just to listen to talk about the weather and from two months ago (laughs) exactly exactly although our so our guests know plenty about cold weather and um and let's go ahead and introduce them we have two Fantastic trial lawyers from the uh, Elman Joseph Law Group. Uh, we have Tony Elman and Frederick Joseph. Uh, guys, how are you doing today? Hello. Hey, doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having us on. And uh, and I should say, you guys, uh, your your firm is out of Chicago, Illinois. So I know you know a little bit about cold weather. And uh, and we were just talking about this before. But Frederick, you're actually from um, uh, upstate or western New York. So at this moment, uh, Buffalo is getting uh, getting a lot of snow. Just sucked. Yeah, I just keep I keep getting these alerts of like a, a, a death count. A, the death toll's rising from the from the snow up there, but. Yeah, I went from really snowy weather to really cold weather. So I have, uh, I have there's something wrong with me. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. But I'm currently, as you can tell, I'm in a, I'm in a hotel room in Mexico. So right, right. I'm trying to, it's all about balance. Yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say you did, you did something to get away from the weather right now and just <laughs> go enjoy some nice weather down in Mexico. Exactly. 
Uh, well, let me let me introduce everybody to you and give a little bit about your background so we so everybody can know. Uh, so first, we'll start off with Tony Elman. Uh, Tony is the senior partner in Elman Joseph Law Group. And I should say you can look them up at ElmanLaw.com. That's E-L-M-A-N Law.com. Uh, Tony is a graduate from the University of Michigan, so I'm sure he's getting ready for the uh, the playoffs coming up right now. And and maybe uh, maybe it'll be a national championship between uh, Michigan and the Georgia Bulldogs. We'll see. Absolutely. We'll take you this year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so after Michigan, went to Tulane Law School and uh, and then got your master's, your LLM from uh, in healthcare law from DePaul University and uh, has been practicing law for more than 30 years, almost exclusively as a plaintiff's lawyer, uh, other than a short stint as a public defender uh, and uh, actually got awarded the Chicago Law Bulletin's uh, Trial Excellence Award uh, for the most verdicts over 30 years. Years in Chicago and Cook County, and um, and Tony. So it's great to have you on. Uh, great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Boy, do I feel old after hearing that. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's I, almost I like. Yeah, it's almost like my obituary. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I can tell you, I can tell you, for somebody who's been practicing law for more than thirty years, you look great, man. You look. Uh, no, you thank look you. Young and spry and and very healthy. Um, so our other uh, our, our other guest is a partner at uh, Elman Joseph Law Group. That's Frederick Joseph, uh, and Frederick. Uh, I, I just got to ask you. So uh, you you're a trial lawyer now, and a very successful trial lawyer, done very well. But you didn't start out wanting to be a trial lawyer. You started out uh, as a had got your voice degree uh, in music from the Purchase Conservatory of Music, and became a professional opera singer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I. When I was in high school, I tried out for the high school musical and they uh, gave me the lead, which I was very surprised by because I hadn't really sung at all. Um, and then uh, my voice teacher said, you know, you can go to college for this. And I had no real um, intentions or aspirations to go to college uh, where I'm from. It's very um, uh, rural and, and poor and uh so they, this was my kind of opportunity to get out and I got a full scholarship to go to college for voice for opera and just kind of went from there and went to Boston University uh, to work on my master's degree and then just started singing professionally. Wow. And, and how long did you do that before you, uh, before you decided to go to law school? About 10 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. And and I have to ask, since you grew up in the rural part of uh, New York and Western New York, had you before you started uh, training for opera, had you actually seen any opera? No, never. Uh, funny story. My my first voice teacher, he's like, do you like opera? He said to me, and I, you know, I, I've never been to an opera. I've never heard an opera. So I'll date myself a little here. He gave me a tape to play in, in the car on the way home. And he said, take this home and, and tell me what you think. So I listened to it. And that's kind of how it was like, you know, Pavarotti sings the hits or something like that. And uh, that was my first introduction to opera. The first opera I ever saw was in, was I was in when I was uh, <laughs> 19 years old. Uh, yeah. So that was the first one I ever saw. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. Well, so after uh, after going to Purchase Conservatory of Music, you then went on to Boston University. And then eventually, after a successful opera career going all over the world and singing opera, decided to become a lawyer and went to Loyola University uh, in Chicago uh, Law School there and um, and then became a partner in the uh, Elman, uh, the uh, Elman Joseph Law Group. Um yeah. 
And uh, and I understand that you consider yourself to be a, a, a professional level cook. Is that right? I would. Uh, yeah, I think that that sounds right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think my, my wife would agree with that. Uh, right, right. My kids, I don't know. I, my kids, I make a really good Kraft mac and cheese. But I uh, no, I, 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 I love that's probably my most creative outlet is, is cooking. So I, yeah, I love it. And, and Frederick could definitely pair the best red wine with it because he's the best at picking out <laughs> red wine as well. Nice. I do, I do like wine. That's true. <laughs> now well, you're great. talking. Yeah, exactly. I know. And now I'm feeling like we should be having a nice meal with, uh, yeah. with some nice red wine to go with it. Yeah. Um, well, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about this case that you uh, tried back in uh, 2019, right? Am I, wait a minute. No. 2021. 2021. Ex- so it was right during the, right during, uh, the pandemic. Uh, yeah. So, so sorry about that. Um, so the name, which of the is, case... which is only, wait, I'm sorry, which is only yes. funny. Cause if you read the transcript, totally out of context, context, you know, they'll be like, Mr. Omen, step back. So uh, yes. the, the bailiff can wipe that down. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I saw, I saw that. And the, I, I saw that and the judge was very apologetic about asking him to move back. Like normally that wouldn't, we wouldn't ask that, but in this under yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. But without the, without knowing about COVID, which in the parts of the transcript that we had, they wasn't actually talked about. It's just, I, I love to, you know, know what somebody thinks 50 years from now, <laughs> that transcript. I guess, I guess we should ask, and we could talk about this, but were you required to wear masks or anything like that at the time you were trying it? We were, as long as we, we had to wear the mask, unless we were talking or up in front of the jury or up in front of the judge. So as long as our, when our mouth is moving, the mask is off and our mouth is not moving, the mask is on. And the jury, they're all wearing masks. They're all wearing masks, but they did have the option of not wearing masks. The judge told them that they could, you know, take the mask off. But I think all of them left the mask on just to be respectful of everybody else. And because the judge just said the word mask, they're like, oh, I'll just put it on. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, uh, let me tell you the full name of the case. Um, So the full name of the case is uh, Marqual Jefferson uh, on behalf of Shavonis Taylor uh, versus uh, Hermano J. Mazai. And it was tried in 2021 in DuPage County, Illinois. Uh, And this is involved a um, a a car uh, hitting a pedestrian um, in um, in Darien, Illinois. Uh, and happened on September 17, 2019. And uh, I'm going to give a little bit of the facts of the case. And then, uh, you know, one of the questions I had as I was reading this is, and I often think about this when I read some of these cases is, this must have been one of those cases when it came into the office that you were on the edge or thinking like, should we take this or should we not? Because, because, but it, it seems like from at least the first police report that came out or the one that came out from DuPage County, uh, they put the majority of the fault on your client, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, let me tell let me tell the uh, story. So this happened uh, in Darien, Illinois, uh, and it happened on the sort of intersection of Interstate 55 and Cass Avenue. And Shavanis was uh, had just moved to the area, uh, was going to a friend's house uh, in order to get her hair uh, styled or, or cut. And um, she did not drive cars, so she usually would take the bus or would try to walk. And so what happened here is she was walking along Cass Avenue uh, and she uh, essentially uh, was and I I understand this was disputed uh, in in the case. But I think the allegation was that she was crossing the exit ramp 
for uh, for Interstate 55 uh, that would go on to Cass Avenue, while uh, the defendant, Mr. Mazay, uh, he was driving a Jeep Grand Cherokee um, and essentially just uh, hit her and ran over her and, and, and killed her uh, in, instantly. Uh, and it happened to be caught on video because the driver behind had a dash cam. Uh, on and it and I think there was no evidence of any breaking of any swerving uh, and he claimed that he didn't see her and there's we'll, we'll get into the reasons why he might not have seen her um, but essentially ran over her and and, and killed her uh, and so your client was her son Marquall um, and as I said the when the police went out to investigate the scene and and, and got the uh, downloaded the um, a dash cam video and did the download of the of the uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee. Basically, found that he was driving within his lane, didn't do anything erratic, was was following the law, and put uh, pretty much all of the blame on uh, Shavanis or Vaughn, as her as her friends called her. Um, and so, uh, and and so, you took that case. The um, the policy limits for the insurance were $250,000. The highest offer that I saw before trial was $15,000, um, which is often the, the case where they, they basically give you no choice but to go try a case. Um, and, uh, and, you, and at the end of the case, you got a million-dollar verdict. Uh, they found both parties 50% at fault. Uh, and so in, in, under the law in Illinois, that got reduced down to $500,000, but uh, more than double the policy limits. And uh, I haven't done the math, but many multiples of what their offer uh, was for the case. Um, so just fantastic work. Um, I, I shouldn't. I, I want to talk to you guys about how you develop some of the facts in this case. But one of the things that I... Um, that, that I uh, didn't disclose or didn't tell in the initial flat facts is that not only was there an allegation that Mr. Um, Mr. Mazai was uh, driving too fast, that he was looking sort of at the traffic that he was merging into and not in front of him as he was going off the exit, but that he also had Netflix playing on his uh, phone. Uh, and of course, uh, as all of us do, he, he was only listening to Netflix. Uh, I don't know of anybody who actually watches Netflix. Um, so he uh, so he was claiming that he was listening to Netflix, not watching it, uh, and um, and and therefore was not at fault. Um, but let, let's go back. Uh, let's go back for a second. And if I got anything wrong, please correct me. Um, but it, th this is, uh, just really, really great work on what is, what's a tough case. Um, but talk to me a little bit about how, when that case first comes into the office, how do you, how, you know, what did you see in it that you decided, you know, we're going to go after this case? I would say the first thing that I would, that I did do is I went ahead and formulated a lawsuit that had both account for negligence and willful and wanton conduct. I didn't expect to win it all in the willful and wanton conduct, but I wanted the jury to hear that there's a count for willful and wanton so they could say no to that and yes to the negligence. And it would be right. a lot easier to win the case that way. So from the very beginning of the case, we had that count of willful and wanton misconduct and the defense attorney slept through the whole litigation process with that second count. He never did a motion to dismiss. Um, he never really addressed that count at all. 
And I think he was caught by surprise at trial when it went all the way to the jury and we had to do jury instructions. And the jury instructions were formulated in such a way where if the jury finds that the defendant was negligent or willful and wanton, verdict for the plaintiff, you know, uh, on that verdict form B of comparative negligence. So I think that's the aspect of the case that from a legal standpoint and a technicality standpoint, really put us over the hoop. The rest was um, just the different aspects of the little micro issues that we addressed throughout the trial. Does does willful and wanton does that give you uh, does that give you punitive damages or any extra damages? What 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 is available under under a willful and wanton standard? On willful and wanton, um, you're allowed to get punitive damages, but typically, like ninety nine percent or more of the time, the insurance companies aren't required to pay any. In fact, it right. gives them like an out for not having to pay compensatory damages if the defendant's found willful and wanton and there's punitives. So we just angle the willful and wanton, not really on this case for the punitives, more for the compensatory and to either get the policy or to get you know above the policy if the case went to trial. Right. But punitives is uh, to get punitive damages too, there has to be a hearing before the judge. Um, and the judge has to find that there's sufficient evidence from the willful and wanton part of the case to go to punitives. But I think we sort of disguise that. We didn't really want to address the punitives with the willful and wanton because then the defense attorney would do a motion to maybe dismiss the willful and wanton, but they never did it. We just let it slide right by to the bitter end. But Steve, to answer your question about um, when the case first came in, I think that certainly the without the cell phone slash Netflix aspects of it, I'm not going to say it would it would be a pass, but um, it would be a lot harder to take that kind of a case. But with with those facts that were kind of in there, even though they were disputed, even though, as you mentioned, they were, you know, the allegations were from the defendant that he was only listening to it. That gave us a fighting chance for sure. So we 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 took that case saying, you know what, it's and it ended up being a 50 50. But we we took it with those facts that we had with uh, the police report, the way it was written up and having the Netflix part of that certainly push us over the edge as to, you know what, this is one that we're we're going to take. And you're right. A $15,000 offered is, is great from my perspective because it gives me no option. Right. It gives me no choice but to try this case. And that's it. So uh, I'm looking at the uh, you you sent us the uh, reconstruction report of the this is the DuPage County, I guess, merit team, the Metropolitan Emergency Response and Investigation Team. And they I don't see anything in here about the Netflix, but they, how how did you all how did you learn about the, the Netflix being on the phone? That's part of the uh, Darien Peace Report, okay. um, which is not part of the merit team investigation. And the merit team investigation was like a countywide investigation where all the police departments collaborate to see if there's any kind of criminal activity um, against Mr. Mazze, the defendant in this case. And that's what was one of the unique aspects of this case that I don't think either side really put a lot of stock into was when the merit investigator, um, the officer was brought to the witness stand and discussed his report that it was really a criminal investigation against Mr. Mazze. So the defense attorney tried to use that by saying, oh, was not guilty in the criminal investigation. Therefore, he should probably be not guilty here. The judge said, wait a second, you can't argue that. 
but he made a lot of inferences about that. And he had to overcome that as well because the jury was definitely told, hey, he's NG on the uh, criminal part of the investigation on this case. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer, yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And as I understand, obviously, a big part of your case is that he's distracted when he's driving. Um, it, but my understanding is that the police officer, it must have been the one from Merritt, testified that he didn't believe that Mr. Mazay was distracted. So talk about a little bit how you uh, handled that on cross or how you addressed that with the jury. Sure. Yeah. So um, that uh, officer at the time when he wrote the report did not have the information that uh, the defendant was streaming Netflix. Um, which streaming, and I'm using air quotes here, streaming was the crux of the defendant's argument in this case. Defendant, I don't know, uh, defense counsel made a big deal about the term streaming. Um, He said that streaming 
we use streaming in the way that it's technically meant like streaming, you're streaming, you're downloading something, something's coming into your phone on an active basis. He used stream. He thought streaming meant that you are just, uh, that he wanted the word streaming out of the trial. He filed a motion limited to get streaming kicked out of the trial. Um, so that was a big, big uh, point of contention between the two. And thankfully the judge made the right, <laughs> the judge was young enough and tech savvy enough to go, well, look, if you're using Netflix, you're streaming Netflix. I mean, like that, that it is what it is, you know? Um, but yeah, no, he, the, so the cop at the, the guy that wrote the mayor report didn't know that the defendant was streaming Netflix at the time when he wrote the report. So when we got him on the stand, um, we hit him with a lot of this information where it was like, you know, we cell phone records. We, the defendant himself said X, Y, Z. The defendant himself is going to tell told us that at the time he put on a show and put in, you know, does that change your opinion at all? You know, he kind of stuck to his guns a little bit. Does that change your, would it change your opinion about whether or not the defendant was distracted? If you knew that he had a show, a Netflix show on and his phone, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, it was, I, he got really defensive on the stand. Um, I, he didn't have all the facts when he wrote this report. Um, right. And if, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, I think it was a situation where this is a very, uh, a county, which is uh, mostly right-leaning, uh, a whiter uh, county, demographically speaking. He's got a, a, a dead African-American client in the middle of the road and a, and a small business owner, white guy driving a nice car um, who pulls over and, and says, I, I, I'm so sorry. She came out of nowhere, nothing I could do. And I think he wrote the report based upon that, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I, I, I couldn't come up with any other reason why he would have said that this guy wasn't distracted. You know, and it's called a merit report. So it really, in the end, was meritless. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why they name it a merit report. When it's meritless, it doesn't even fully investigate countywide what's really going on. There's no follow up with the, the Netflix aspects of the, the streaming. And I would also add to what Frederick mentioned. And the judge, uh, I think, is one of the best judges I've been before, Judge Rome, R-O-H-M, if not the best judge I've been before. Um, he actually lost sleep. He actually told everybody that he lost sleep thinking about an issue that he needed to rule on. So there was a statute that's directly on point about in Illinois about streaming and playing like Netflix and Disney and all those kinds of um, amusements and entertainment in your vehicle, but it wasn't effective until after our accident. So it was passed um, during the litigation, but not effective until after our accident. So the judge had to really decide if it was going to be given to the jury or not in the jury instructions, and it wasn't. So we didn't have that benefit. We were really upset because then the jury wouldn't be given any kind of a legal basis for Netflix not being streamed in the vehicle. Now, it's against the law, but back then when the accident happened, it actually wasn't even against the law Really any specific statutes. Yeah, and I thought one thing, I, you know, just so we can fill everybody in, the defense claimed that he put the phone down sort of in the middle console and wasn't watching it. And I thought, uh, Tony, I think it was in your second close where you pointed out, well, he's got a cell phone holder there. I mean, who, you know, you've got a cell phone holder who doesn't use the cell phone holder when they've got one, um, which makes 
uh, perfect sense, you know, that he's probably watching something on there. And, and I also thought it was a, an effective point that he couldn't remember what he was watching on Netflix, which suggests to you that he's probably, well, I mean, I mean, listening to, uh, he's probably listening to something he uh, was embarrassed to talk about. Also, more than that, I mean, this was a gentleman, Mr. Mazay, that admitted in his discovery deposition that he used Netflix as his form of streaming entertainment every day he would go to work and come home from work. It was like part of his natural custom of commuting. So for him, he would definitely know what genre he was typically listening to, whether it's comedy, drama, adventure. For him not even to know what kind of series or series he may have even been into or even speculate, I thought was pretty odd. Yeah, I mean, well, and the thing that jumped out to me was that he could remember that he put the phone down in the center console face down, but he couldn't remember what he was watching on Netflix was kind of seemed a little bit selective. Um, but I want to go back for a second because we were t we were talking about how I think this this happens in so many cases where you're stuck with um, a report from law enforcement where their job is different than our job and they're looking for different things than we're looking for. Um, and And sometimes you're in the position of of these guys who are coming into their job and, and doing whatever they think needs to be done for what they consider getting it done. And we're in this situation where, you know, we, we don't want to antagonize them and we want to learn what we know. Um, but we also want to, don't want to be stuck with what they say um, if they got it wrong. And I was thinking about that because I just did a bunch of um, first responder depositions, but I thought I saw somewhere that you guys did not do any discovery depositions in this case. Well, we did we did a discovery deposition. The only one I think we noticed up, there was only one that I best recall was the discovery deposition of the defendant, which you have to take. But we we basically tried this case with less than a thousand dollars in costs. No wow. focus groups here, guys. No <laughs> expert witnesses of any kind. We went ahead and just came to trial and tried the case. All we did for trial prep was <clears throat> subpoena the <clears throat> excuse me. Subpoena the witnesses, and that was it. So you wow. didn't even know what this officer was going to say. I mean, you knew what was in his report, but you didn't really even, you hadn't even really interacted with right. him. Right, and that was, and that was, I think, to our advantage. I mean, hey, listen, all the, I mean, every time you do all these depositions, the defense attorneys know what to expect, how to address everything, but we had nothing to lose in this case. We had a $15,000 lousy offer. We knew the policy was 250. We knew we had um, a dead plaintiff, and we knew the defendant was streaming Netflix. So we thought this was a good case to just like go to trial. We know she died instantly and make this a liability fight. And that's what we're used to because our law firm does lots of these soft tissue cases, which are really, really hard. So we're used to fighting on these MBA cases on liability. So it really played into our hands uh, because we didn't have a big damages case. I mean, she died instantly. And what's interesting to know from a damages perspective, there was no way we could just like ring the bell on this case with big money because it's DuPage County. Um, she was pretty much a loner because she wasn't even with her um, son at all until three weeks before the accident. So she was like living life at large at different places. She'd only been in this area for three weeks before the accident. She really didn't have any zero or next of kin besides her son. And her son really wasn't that close to her. Of course, they loved each other, but her son did not grow up with her. Um, so this was a, a difficult case from a standpoint of no close 
surviving family members or even friends. And we tried to subpoena a bunch of her friends and family members at trial. And when we called them and they talked about her, they were like one word answers. Like, what was it like living with her? Right. Great. <clears throat> what kinds of things did you do with her? Hung out. I mean, so there really was no ancillary aspects of the case from a damages standpoint that we could really draw a lot of extra compensation from. So we knew that this was a case where we were just going to dig in deep on the liability part and see what happens. You're right, though, Yvonne. We had, we had, we didn't do any uh, first responder depths. We had them tied down to their reports. um, And conversely, the defense lawyer didn't take any of these steps either. So we had these guys, at least we knew that they were going to, if I can put the report in their face, they were going to read the report and stick to that. And there were con- there were multiple reports and things were very contradictory. So right there in and of itself would allow me to, if somebody was going to stick to one thing, would allow me to impeach that person or at least throw them off their game with contradictory information from a different first responder or a supplemental report and things like that. Had you known X, Y, Z, would you have changed, you know, and I was, we were hitting them with that a lot throughout the trial. And I think that was effective. Um, But no, there were definitely moments where I sat down and go and said to myself, geez, I really wish I knew he would have, or she would have said that before I asked that question. But yeah, that's what made it fun. Right. (laughs) If you want to talk about sleepless nights, that stresses me out. (laughs) I mean, that's more that that is like old school trials. I remember the first lawyer that I worked for who had uh, he started out in the in the 1950s. And he would he told me that he would try, uh, you know, like like five or six cases a week. And he would, you know, try one case and then walk out of the courtroom, get handed a file, walk into the next courtroom, just start trying it just out of the file. Uh, which in some ways, uh, you know, is, is stressful, but in some ways is very exciting and very fun. And he and he he would always talk about how that was his most fun you know, practicing law where he was just trying case after case after case. It sharpens the blade. That's for sure. That's right. That's right. So I want, I did want to ask you, so how often in Illinois is it that you end up getting two police agencies uh, issuing reports? Cause that's, you don't really see that in Georgia. If, if they, so we have the skirt team, which it sounds like it's similar to what the, the merit team is where they, they look into prosecutable homicides if if there's if there's grounds there but if they if they come in and take jurisdiction of the case then they pretty much handle the investigation and everybody else steps out and uh and then same thing with it's like a county versus a city or something like that so how often do you see these sort of uh multiple reports that you know can sometimes be counted contradictory in dupage i think it i think it happens when there's a a major um injury or a fatality they'll bring somebody in dupage county in Cook County, we rarely see it. Rarely do we see that. Um, if there's a fatality, they'll bring a special uh, unit out and they'll do their own report. Um, but yeah, it's not often. Yeah, yeah. And and I I didn't mention this, and, and you guys have mentioned it a little bit, but I should let our listeners know. So DuPage County is uh, outside of Chicago. Looks like the next count, one of the next counties, a little bit to the southwest of uh of Cook County, uh, but it's uh, a much different county than Cook County as far as what the venue's like. Can you, you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, the demographics when we were picking a jury, I think we had 36 people. I think there was only one African-American out of the 36, and 35 of them were either white um, or upper class um, to choose from. 
So it was really, really tough. I mean, listen, the one thing that went definitely wrong in the beginning of the trial were my inkling questions in the beginning of the trial. I just felt flat on my face, all those inkling questions. I just got back from PLU Trial Lawyers University, Dan Ambrose in Vegas, and I was like riding high with all that great knowledge of inkling. <laughs> and I go there and I try a few of those inkling questions out. Um, if you find a dead person in the road and all the evidence shows it, can you maybe think about $22 million or just questions like that? I'm just making it up now. And they're like, heck no, that would be nothing we would ever think. Not even for our like mom, dad, brother, or sister. Um, you're just trying to win the lottery here. And they, you know, they would, they would say those kinds of answers out loud. And then one of the, uh, jurors, prospective jurors, I remember was like, a. a a vet from the Marines, and he's like, Oh, I lost so many people in this war, and they got no money from the US government. Here you are asking for money. So it was really a disaster. We had to like refocus and understand that our audience is completely different here than anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's in, that's interesting. Uh, and it reminds me of so, uh, our law partner, Yvonne and I's law partner, Jeff Harris, talks a lot about uh, jury selection, and uh, he's sort of got this theory that the most important question, if you can only ask one question, it's, you know, did somebody have, you know, get injured by somebody else's negligence and not bring a lawsuit um, that, you know, that generally those jurors are just not going to be good for you because it's exactly what you said. Well, somebody got injured and they didn't get paid anything. So why should this person, you know, um, very. Well, interesting. and that's why I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, that's why I, I don't want to jump too far ahead because Steve's always, Steve's always, Steve always has like an organized way of approaching this. And then I just throw it off the rails by asking uh, it, it, the that, first question. That's that what makes it so, my head. so lively. <laughs> um, so dynamic. But, you know, we always talk about accepting responsibility, um, you know, using that as a theme, but it had to be particularly um, effective with that kind of jury, probably. And I also, and, you know, it, I felt like it jumped out so well and i think it was your initial close um you know i mean that's one of the i know you know i hate to say these words but it's one of the good things about apportionment is that if you're able to use that percentage to take some responsibility um and look like you're owning your baggage it goes such a long way it sounds like you all built that as one of your themes yeah definitely it was um we I, Tony asked me to do the close the night before, um, we did the trial. Um, cause it was just, it was just lean. It was just leaning that way. Um, right. Right. But, uh, it's the funny story. My, my, my in-laws were going to make me tell the story. They, they live in DuPage County for me. I live in the city. So for me to drive, it was an hour and a half for me to drive home every night. Tony asked me to do the close. So I called them and I said, do you mind if I sleep over at your house tonight? Because I can't drive all the way back and get all the way out there. I got to practice my closing argument. Um, so I, I stopped at a Kmart on the way to their house, bought pajamas, slept at their house, <laughs> wore the same suit, but I borrowed one of my father-in-law's ties. So I nice. do my, at least have a different tie when I did the closing argument. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it was, I said to Tony, I go, that's, I'm happy to do the close on this, but it, this is not, I'm not going to ask this jury to put a hundred percent on the defendant. Yeah, I'm just not that it, it, I would lose all credibility with that. I, and I, I don't feel that way. I, I didn't feel it was 100% on the defendant in any way, shape or form. I felt that there was more than enough 
but it wasn't it wasn't going to be a and and to getting back to DuPage County. DuPage County is if you're a trial lawyer in 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 Chicago, you're trying very hard to get into Cook County. If there's any any stretch, if the accident happens in DuPage County, you you would do anything you can to try to bring that thing back to Cook County um, because it's the antithesis of a plaintiff friendly um, pool. And this is the most, I think the most crazy thing about this trial. Do you know how many strikes the defendant, you, the defense counsel used in this case? Zero. He struck <laughs> zero people off the jury. Not one person. <laughs> it was that good for him. He, he, he didn't have to. Yeah. It was just, everybody looked like him and looked mm-hmm. like the defendant. I, wow. I've, I've been in those counties before where the defense lawyer just stands up and says, the first 12 look good to me, your honor. I'm ready to go. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. He got up there and he was like, you all can get, you all have no problem sending this person home, this guy home with zero dollars, right? Okay, bye, thanks. And that was yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> We're up there trying to hit, you know, how many dollars is too many dollars? And he's just saying, he's just sitting back like, you know. Oh, man. But, uh, yeah. And it you're, was, you're stuck being a plaintiff and a pedestrian, which if it's anything like Atlanta, not a good, not a good place or Cobb County, not a good place to be a pedestrian. Right. Yeah, exactly. 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 Uh, yeah. An African-American pedestrian who was crossing over on a on-ramp. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I didn't point out some of your better evidence and some of the stuff that you you really made effective use of is one that the, I mean one you had the dash cam so that was very very helpful um, and two um, that there was a vehicle that went past her uh, before 
the um, Mr. Mazay who who hit her. And so and you all had that person come testify at trial. And essentially, he testified that he saw her, you know, could see her about, um, you know, two to three seconds before and, and you did the math and it made it about, uh, I think it was like 130 or 140 feet out uh, from her and that and that they you know he obviously didn't hit her and then uh and then mr mazay who was looking at something else uh does so um you know i i thought that was effective use but it but now i'm a little bit uh more surprised since i since i, I realized that you didn't take any depositions. so did you were you sure that mr that the the driver in front was going to say that was going to be that good for you no, not at all. He was going to say something that was going to surprise everybody. Right. You right. wanted surprises. You wanted lots of surprises because surprise to us is surprise to the defense. That's right. And, you know, so far there weren't too many surprises. No, it was a very focused um, yeah. uh, examination. Um, and it was. It was a very... Uh, I, I did that one. It was, it was very, um, Hey, I'm your friend here. We're just trying to get to the facts. You're not in trouble. No one thinks you did anything wrong. I'm just trying to, you, we're just trying to establish what you saw. That's it. Like, you know, you're, this isn't about you. We're just trying to figure out what you saw and you saw her when you first saw her, she was very far away. Right. You know, kind of like leading him in that way. Yeah, I did steer very far away. Okay. And you were driving about 50 miles an hour or something like that. Yeah. And you had no problem seeing her before as you drove by her, right? No, I saw her from way far away. Okay. All right. You know, very kid gloves with him um, to, to just establish certain facts. I, I, I think that, I think that that certainly was effective. I think that helped. Yeah. Yeah. Did we talk about why, why did that car have a dash cam? Sheer luck. So just a regular car? Just a regular car. Okay, so so I was actually going to talk about this because I think it's it is a practice pointer for lawyers now that a lot more cars have dash cams on them than you would think. I, like, for instance, everybody in my family has a dash cam on their car. Uh, my kids, you know, my wife has a dash cam. And then from what I understand from uh, my, my younger daughters in high school, almost all of her friends have dash cams on their cars because their parents just put it in for safety reasons. So I think it's an important thing to start asking, you know, uh, witnesses if there's dash cams. Um, I think you see them more and more because they're not very expensive and they download to your phone. So they're, they're easy to use. Yeah, exactly. Should I ask That's my neighbor? Yeah. Should yeah, I ask get, my neighbor if he has get, one? Get that dash cam. <laughs> I want to yeah, see that right. video. Yeah, I'll send right. it to you guys if I get it. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> wow, that is really interesting, though, because I don't think it's something I would think to ask anybody before this, unless they were driving an Uber or a Lyft or, you know, working in law enforcement or something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. When that video was in the police report that, that um, you know, the, the cop on the scene saw the video. So we got the video. Um, and I think it was really helpful in close to... Um, both from an emotional perspective uh, for the son who was there, who I, that was, that was the first time. And we told him, we warned him, we're like, Hey, we're going to, it didn't show an actual impact of anything like that, but you saw the aftermath. Uh, and we, we told Mark Ball that we're going to show this right now. And he wanted to watch it. He wanted to see it. Um, and I think it, it had a, an effect 
on the jury to have that the son there watching this uh, from an emotional perspective. But it also we could you could second frame by frame. We went through it frame by frame where we were going, okay, I can see her here, I can see her here, I can see her here. And I think that was it was helpful and in, in close for the jury to go. Yeah, what were you looking at? How could you not see this person? I can. I, I, I think at one point I stopped the jury. I stopped and I said, "I can jury. You're you're on. A, we're watching a little TV here. I can see that woman three hundred yards in front. Of, can you guys see her? You know, rhetorically, you can mm-hmm. see her. You can see her. You can see her. What was he looking at? Where were his eyes? Um, so yeah, no, the, it was sheer luck that, that, that we had that dash cam. Um, wow. And, and his testimony supported it, the defendants. He was actually uh, telling the jury and also testified his discovery deposition that he was looking to the left because he wanted to change lanes off of that exit ramp. He wasn't looking straight ahead. He wasn't looking to the right. But, you know, his defense argument, defense attorney's argument was like, he didn't need to like look straight. He didn't need to look to the right because it's an exit ramp and you would never expect a pedestrian to be there because it's not like someone trying to walk across the street in the middle of a block. Um, this isn't like a major road where pedestrians are. In fact, there's a fence there. There's no sidewalk. Um, this is a woman that was lost. And that was his argument. No one would expect that. But our argument is you got to expect everything on the road, whether it's a deer, whether it's a squirrel, whether it's a box that fell off another vehicle in front of you. He wasn't paying attention. And that was our theme in the case. And Netflix definitely played a role. Right. Yeah, I I, I was uh, in, in the closing, I, I I was thinking about your effective use of the cross-exam of the defendant, which is since he was testifying that he never saw her beforehand and that she just sort of jumped out, you were able to cross-examine him and say, well, you don't know, you know, if she was stepping out in front of you, you don't know what she was doing. I mean, you, you weren't able to say anything about what she was doing uh, because he never saw her. And there's an explanation for why he didn't see her. One, he's either looking the wrong way or two, he's watching the Netflix or, you know, he's not watching the road is what he's doing. Absolutely. I mean, one one technique that I've always done in a lot of my trials that most defense attorneys are completely surprised about is I go through the defendant's affirmative defense, all right. the little allegations, and I say, do you have any knowledge about the plaintiff not keeping a proper lookout? Do you have any knowledge about the plaintiff not taking any proper evasive action to avoid the impact? Do you have any information about the defendant, sorry, about the plaintiff walking into the roadway? Do you have any information about, and their answer is like, no information, no information, no information. So when the jury instructions are read to the jury with the affirmative defense, the defendant's burden of proof is really not proved at all. Yeah, yeah. You almost kind of feel bad for the guy that like it's easy to forget and we can't think about it this way, but that he's real, that that driver is really only there because his insurance company wouldn't pay a completely reasonable amount of money. Yeah, honest, he was the most he was the most sympathetic defendant you've I mean he was the nicest guy he didn't fight on the stand he didn't you know he was just you I, I did I I had a hard time I had a hard time beating him up because I was like he you know you he he made it very hard um for the jury to met, to come to that conclusion because he was very soft-spoken you know, I'm sorry, uh, like that. Like he, he was, he did a, I mean, he is who he is, but he is that community too. I mean, he is, he is the prime example of the community in which he was being tried for, uh, tried in. And it was very, very difficult. 
yeah. definitely the hometown defendant. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, and, and this isn't to be overly critical of the defense lawyer, but I did notice a couple of things from his uh, opening and closing um, that I was I thought were a little questionable. And, and uh, Tony, I think you even pointed it out in your second close, but he never referred to his client by name. He kept referring to him as my guy or as the client. Now, it just felt very awkward in trial that like he didn't you know, it was just whoever you put in, you know, at the table with him is who he was going to defend, no matter who it was, and that he didn't really have any kind of a relationship with that guy. I mean, I mean, for the defense attorney in the case, it just was like all business. Yeah, you could tell the way he pre-tried the case with us, the way he handled the case with us, whether it be jury instructions and motions of lemonade. You know, I don't want to talk too bad about him, but there was a little bit of taunting against us. In the case and not even hello and good morning when we first greeted him when the trial started so from the standpoint of getting a good result but it definitely felt great yeah it was bittersweet and the defendant himself was, was really nice um yeah. it just didn't come across the defense attorney was that same light and he definitely treated the whole case as very cold you could tell that he didn't really want to do the trial wasn't really prepared for the trial when we were up the day before the trial, when we have the final pretrial conference, we try to ask the judge to continue the trial because he was caught off guard with the Wolf One Wanton count. And he told the judge, oh, I'm a little worried there might be coverage issues here. Can you please kick the trial? The judge said no. The one thing that I don't think none of us brought up, which I think is amazing in this case, is we filed a lawsuit in February of 2021. We had a trial in November of 2021, nine months later. Yeah. I mean, that's fantastic, but that's because you did no depositions and only spent a thousand dollars. Speed trial. Right. I think that's great. I mean, that, that is uh, that's fantastic work. It's and amazing. To, and to keep costs under a thousand dollars, I mean, it really doesn't matter what kind of case you're trying. I mean, that's uh, that, that's truly a, a, a feat there. That's uh, a that, the that, gas money going back and forth. In the right. County, driving back and forth was probably more than a thousand. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did want to mention one other thing that I, I saw that the defense did in their opening. Again, this isn't to be overly critical, but it struck me that, um, you know, we always talk about on the podcast how credibility, in our opinion, is the most important thing. Whoever has credibility in the courtroom is generally going to win. It's not always true, but generally, you know, credibility rules the day. And right at the very beginning of the opening statement of the defense attorney, he said, if I say something that is not supported by the record, then just disregard it as a lawyer talking. And I was like, you're almost telling the jury right there at the beginning that I'm going to just say some stuff. And if it doesn't turn out to be true, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's like, (laughs) this lawyer speaks. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. And, uh, yeah, so it's just like it's almost like he was undermining himself right from the beginning. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, I, I just I noted that and I was like, that's that, that's something that would be really, uh, you know, really brazen and probably not totally well thought out to say to a jury. Yeah, um, I had one thing. This is kind of unrelated, but I had one thing I wanted to make sure I asked you guys about um, for Marquall. Uh, you know, I think it can be it can be really hard to get anybody to talk about their their feelings or their loss on the stand. I think it can be in general harder for men. And then I think young young men in particular, uh, 
typically don't like to be vulnerable on the stand like that or talk about things like that. I'm wondering what you guys did with him to try to help him get to that place. Yeah, I would just yeah. start by saying before Frederick carries on, the first thing we had to do was get our clients in court, um, get him to show up. We were worried. We were crossing our fingers every day that he'd actually show up at the trial and really care about the case because um, he didn't really understand the, the repercussions of getting good results and showing up in court and presenting the case. And some of his family members that we subpoenaed um, and, and witnesses that were you know, post-occurrence witnesses, none of them really wanted to show up. And we had to like say, hey, listen, you got to be here. You know, you were subpoenaed. And, and for Mark, well, we had to convince him that he really needed to just invest a few hours of his time coming to court a few days. And he showed up, but uh, just by the skin of our teeth. He, uh, you're right, Yvonne. He was um, a teenage, I mean, he's a teenage boy. And he's a teenage boy who had a hard life growing up. Um, showing emotion, empathy, anything is, is, is difficult for him. So it was a real, the first time that I, the first time that I asked, I was trying to get him ready to get on the stand. And um, we were on the phone and I was talking to him and I was like, Marco, I tell me a little bit about like, you're, you know, with, without your mom anymore. Like, what, how, how is that? What is that like? And he said, it sucks. And I go, Mark, well, when the bears lose, that sucks. This doesn't <laughs> suck, Mark. Well, this is different than sucks. Okay. We have to go a little bit further than sucks. So it was a lot of really trying to pinpoint specific um, pressure points and sense memory things for him. Like he, his, his girlfriend was pregnant at the time. And I, I, I just had had a baby maybe eight months before. And I, I remember talking to him and saying, Mark, well, when you, you're not going to get to hand your son over to your mom and have like, have this moment where you're going to, you know, I want you to think about that, really sit on that and think about that. And taking him back to when he found out the kid was working at McDonald's when he got the phone call, right? His mom was that, I mean, I tr just go back to that moment when your manager hands you the phone and you get that call. And just, and just keeping him there and staying in it and just bringing it out a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And he got to that place. He did. And there was, there was not a dry eye in the room when he was on the stand. He really was able to, in his own way, you know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a, a, a show by any stretch of the imagination, but for a, a teenage African-American kid who had a very, very hard upbringing with a mom who was in and out of his life. It wasn't like, you know, she was the greatest mother that ever lived. She was, he was in and out of his life. Um, he gave everything that we could have wanted uh, uh, during that testimony. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room, myself included, during that, during that direct exam. He, he, did, he did really well. well. That's great. I mean, it's especially in, like in, in, in Georgia, we have our wrongful death damages are the full value of the life from the perspective of the decedent. So if you have, it's not actually the, the grief of those that are left behind or, or their loss. So if you have a husband or somebody who's just really not comfortable on the stand or whatever, you, you, you can work with it with other family members and other friends. Um, but it sounds like for your damages, they're all going to be measured from the perspective of who's, who's, who's left behind or the statutory sort of, 
heir or beneficiary? Yeah, exactly. She, she didn't survive. Um, we actually had, there was a, an emergency room doctor who was the first person on the scene just by chance who tried to revive her. And she testified that she was dead like immediately. So there was no kind of survival, um, pain and suffering or anything like that. So yeah, it gotcha. is. It, it's, you have to elicit this testimony from the decedents to go tell me, I, you need to give me testimony so that we can put a number on this for how this is going to affect you for the rest of your life and your family and your children and all these things, which is incredibly on an 18 year old kid. Yeah. Yeah. So we've spoken a little bit about damages. Talk about some of the other witnesses or how you tried to develop the damages other than through Mark Wall, um, that, uh, that how, how you built that up. And then ultimately in your closing, you asked for uh, 1.9 million. How, how did you decide on that number or come to that number? Yeah, we had a couple of uh, Mark Wall's aunties uh, on that came and testified. Um, some did better than others. Um, but again, we have this, you know, it's in our jury instructions, no prejudice, no passion, no sympathy. And that's the defense lawyer kept hitting no sympathy, no sympathy, no sympathy. So it's tough. It's like a fine line where, you know, we're trying to present testimony so that we want, of course, we want sympathy from the jury, um, but we have to do it in a way that um, is meaningful and is not. Uh, and that's one of the that's one of the, that's some of the feedback that the jury gave us was that, you know, it seemed like we were putting on a parade of people just to try to get sympathy. Um, and it wasn't as effective as just, and going back, I would probably, I wouldn't have put on as many of those, um, witnesses as, as we did. Um, but we, with, with respect to the damages, we didn't have any economic damages, right? There was no, we didn't have a person that was going to say she would have made X amount of dollars for the rest of her life. She would have provided this much money. We didn't have anything like that. Um, because she, she wasn't working. She had a learning disability. Um, she, uh, wasn't as sympathetic of a, uh, damages, what damages plaintiff as, as, you know, the, the corporate executive dad who made 300 grand a year, kind of the kind of person who had five kids and a, and a wife. Um, so that's, that was part two of, when Tony asked me to do the close is like, I'll do the close, but in this jurisdiction with this plaintiff, with this jury, I can't do, I'm not going to do anything above a two. I'm not going to put a two in front of anything. I, I, I'll put a one there, but I'm not going to do a two. Cause I think it would have lost some people. And in voir, people were already on the fence about, you know, is some are some damages too much damages people were like eh. people were very on the fence about a lot of this a lot of these things um so yeah i, I went with 1.9 I, I i felt i felt good about asking for that which is really important for me personally um when i'm asking for a number yeah if i don't if i don't believe it I, no one's gonna believe it um so i felt really good about 1.9 um yeah I don't know. Tony might have a different uh, perspective about it. I'm but. glad he. Uh, I'm glad he asked for 1.9. I mean, after I went to the trial, you know, lawyers university in, in Vegas, and I was taught all those little anchoring uh, activities. I was thinking big numbers, you know, anchoring, getting the jury to understand that 
they should consider larger amounts. But after the horrible reaction to these anchoring questions, I was I was going to be blessed with anything that they would be blessed with in the end. So yeah. that's the best way I can answer that myself. Yeah, it's you. You definitely. I mean, it, you definitely got to be comfortable with what you're asking for and and believe in it. Uh, because if you don't, then it, that comes across to the jury. Um, you so uh, Frederick, you said you got you did get a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards. Um, can you give us sort of uh, some feedback on what they told you about the trial and and uh, and and what they thought of it overall? Yeah, I think that for the most part. It was, I mean, I think it was everyone's first time. Uh, I think that they, it was a quick trial. So I think we were really happy about that. <laughs> um, I think that at the end of the day, they all had a hard time with it. Um, I was not, they deliberated for, I think, six hours. Um, so they had a, they had just, it was tough for them to make a decision. Um, they didn't, I, I remember this, that they didn't love Vivoire. They didn't love getting probed on asking about numbers and they didn't love being probed on, you know, because this was a this was a racial trial in the sense of you got a white guy and a black lady dying. So they didn't love getting probed on that. Um, they, you know, um, but at the end of the day, I think they they felt for the client. They, they really did. And I, I think they um when presented with the evidence in the way that we did, um, I gave them the option of making it a 50, 50. I was like, it's okay. Sometimes that is what happens. Sometimes it's 50, 50. You can do that here. You can do that, right? You can go back into the room, do 50, 50 and feel good about it. And I think that's at the end of the day, what they did. Yeah. That, that, that seemed to be, it's, it's a benefit, I think, cause you were able to explain to them that if it was, if it was 49% for your client, then that means your client loses and they get nothing. So it's uh, so the jury knows that it's got to be 50, 50 um, or, or more the, or that um, um, or, or more than 50% on the defendant. Um, so that definitely, definitely helps. Tony um, was there. Tony was there for the plan to, or for the jury stuff too. He, he might have a, a, a better recollection. I think that's what. spot on. I think also to the, the jurors seem also to zero in on that the insurance was involved. So they all sort of knew that in the back of the minds, back of their minds. And I think they were a little surprised that he even went to trial and that maybe it wasn't settled with a dead plaintiff. So I think it was a combination of all that. I think it was a mistake that the only people on the defense side were the defense lawyer and then two adjusters who were sitting in the, in the defense room. And one of them had an insurance hat on. Um, so I don't, I don't think that was the smartest move that they made. <laughs> I mean, it, the, sitting in the courtroom had a, an insurance hat on. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He came in and he had it. Yeah. I think he had a, an Allstate or a State Farm hat or something, but then he had a, like a Liberty Mutual shirt on, like a, <laughs> like a name tag on. And I go, Oh, you're, you're here for the defense. And he's like, yeah. How'd you know? I was like, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean. <laughs> I'm not Perry Mason here. I, I figured that out pretty quick. <laughs> It's on your shirt, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, what did the jury say about Netflix? Did they think he was watching it or what? I think yeah. we uh, like over blew that whole issue because they're like, you say Netflix almost every single minute. Netflix, 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 Netflix. We right. got it. There's Netflix. They said that they cared a little bit that he was listening to Netflix. So that was like one of the pieces of the pie 
also that he wasn't looking, that he was going too fast. Quite frankly, that he just followed right into her without seeing her. Right. So I'm thinking that if he would have had like a Big Mac in his hand, it would have fought the same as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, going back to what you said, Frederick, about uh, putting too many sort of damages witnesses on. I mean, that's always a fine line of you want to give enough so the jury understands who the decedent is and who they were, but not, you know, just, you know, beat it to death. But it's it, it's so hard to know when you're standing up there and, and to know, you know, how much is enough. So that that is always a, a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I Tony's right about the Netflix part. I think that we got Netflix over with pretty quickly. I think people were like, okay, we get it. But it was such a huge thing for me that I just kept hammering it. Like, you got to be kidding me, this guy. The fact that he kept denying it, and I just I just kept hammering it. And they're like, get it, you get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's that, that that definitely happens in trial where you, especially if you've got a really good point, and you just keep hammering it home, and, and finally the jury's like, "Yeah, okay, we we understand." It's so hard to tell. You're like, yeah. "Do that, you know? Did I not hit it enough?" And then suddenly they're like, "Please stop talking about it. We were all about to kill you." Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, hey, listen, uh, Tony and, and Frederick, this has been uh, really great. Is there anything else about the uh, the Jefferson and, and Taylor versus Mazze uh, case uh, that you want to make sure that our listeners know about that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? The only other thing I would add that we didn't really hit is we did have a mediation in this case. And when we had the mediation with one of the uh, former chief judges in DuPage County, that's when their offer was only 15 grand. We were surprised that they went ahead and they suggested mediation. The policy was 250, and they're like, well, our max is 15. Maybe you could come up, maybe, you know, counter demand at 20 or 25, and we're like, the dead plaintiff? No, thank you. Yeah. That's the only other thing that I was surprised about in that nine months of the life of the lawsuit. And we had that mediation and went nowhere, and it was so low, the 15 grand. Now, you would think that if you were the insurance company, maybe you would get a little bit of a discount and maybe settle for 125 just get the plaintiff over with. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we've gotten those kinds of 125 grand settlements on like these soft tissue cases that are glorified with a little injections. Here we have a dead plaintiff. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget early in my career, uh, I had a death case. And I, I remember one of the defense lawyers coming up to me and saying, uh, you know, because he, he was obviously trying to downplay my case. And uh, and he said to me, he's like, he's like, look, in Georgia, no liability death case that gets 200,000. That's what you're getting. And I was like, it's like, well, I think we could do better. <laughs> but but uh, I just remember them all, you know, they they just had sort of a number. They, they, they're like, this is no liability, but you'll get some money. And you and uh, but 15,000 for somebody's life. I mean, that doesn't I don't I don't, you know. That's just not taking the case seriously. And then, and you're right to do a mediation uh, and stick there or stick, you know, somewhere close to there is kind of like, well, why are we, why are we wasting time? Absolutely. Yeah. No, the only other thing that I would say about this trial was um, it was uh, the first trial that Tony and I had ever done together. We had done a bunch of trials separately. Obviously he's done more trials than any lawyer in Chicago. Um, which is just a fact. Uh, but it was the first trial that we had done together and it was really fun to play off each other's strengths and weaknesses, you know, to see, okay, 
when I'm tanking, he can go, oh, he can step in and pick it up and vice versa. And uh, that was really, really fun to, to work off of, of somebody else in the room together was really, was really cool. We don't all, we don't often have that luxury at our firm because we try so many cases. Um, so that was really fun. And, and I really thought it was cool. I'll, I'll shout Tony out for this is that when the check came in for, for Mark Wall, he personally, cause Mark Wall doesn't have a dad, doesn't have a mom. He's 18 years old, walked him to, he walked him to uh, fidelity and opened up a brokerage account for him with the check that day. And he just say, this is, you're going to, you, you're going to put this in the bank right now. Right. And you're watch this money grow. And you're going to, we're going to call you every six months to make sure that you're doing all right. And he has a new baby and they're doing great. So, uh, I'm really happy for that kid. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for him to, to see it's, it's, it's the reason we do this at the end of the day, you you get done all the other stuff, that moment where he hugs me at the end of the trial is that's it. That that's everything for me. And same with me. I mean, it, it was our pleasure when we actually took him out for like a lunch across the street from our office, handed him the check. And then I walked him over to Fidelity and I asked the Fidelity rep, make sure you take care of him, make sure you give them some good mutual funds to put this money in so we could you know, grow with it. Because this is a gentleman that had absolutely no money, inherited, and he's just like working on minimum wage, living at his auntie's house, uh, and then he has a kid on the way. So yeah. it, was a, it was a good happy ending from the standpoint of at least he got some money, hopefully he could have a nice life from the financial perspective. Well, uh, well, Tony and Frederick, this has been a, a, a great uh, discussion and uh, and really great work on a case that, uh, as we said right at the beginning, would be tough, uh, you know, especially walking in the door to know whether or not it's one you uh, you take. But then to hear, you know, that you were able to keep the cost down to a thousand dollars and, uh, you know, and 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 get a great verdict. That's um, re- really great work. So, uh, so we really appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, let me remind everybody: we've been talking to Tony Elman and Frederick Joseph from the Elman Joseph Law Group, and you can look up Tony and Frederick at ElmanLaw.com. That's E-L-M-A-N Law.com. Hey guys, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Big fan of the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? <laughs>